morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, January 26th, we're studying Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Alongside the lake of Gennesaret in Galilee, Jesus teaches the crowds and he calls his first disciples. He makes regular fishermen into fishers of men. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Filipek. Pastor Filipek serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Filipek, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. Good to be with you, and greetings to our listeners in the name of our crucified, risen, reigning Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and who is to come. Pastor Filipek, as we get started this morning, let's talk context. We've come through four chapters of the gospel according to St. Luke. What do we need to know as we jump into chapter five this morning? Well, I think all of the guests previously have done a really good job at focusing on the gospel of Luke itself, which is not usually a gospel that's focused on. So I don't want to spend a lot of time recounting it. Uh, I just want to focus on two major points, maybe, perhaps. And that is that Luke's gospel, as I said, is not usually one of that's focused on. When we start thinking about as Christians, the gospels, at least in my own parish and those who I've talked to, perhaps your experience is a bit different, but Matthew's gravitated towards, as is John. Those seem to be the most two beloved and renowned gospels. Mark and Luke are also loved, but they're not as prominent and prevalent those who would use the first, the, the one-year lectionary would see that the first gospel is predominantly Matthew, followed by John. In the three-year lectionary, as we get reading in, in the churches, you see that year C is a year mainly for Luke. But apart from that, Luke's gospel is not as popular, I would argue. But it is it is beautiful in many respects. And the beauty of Luke's gospel and the beauty of Mark's gospel is that they have this almost discovery process built into it. If you like mysteries, you know, Luke and and Mark are your gospels, in my opinion, right? Um, they're always asking this question, who is this man? They don't start all up at the top uh, with all the knowledge from previous audience like John. In the beginning was the word and the word is with God and the word was God. And they don't start with Matt, like Matthew does with all the genealogy and connecting it to Abraham and making sure we have all those I's dotted and T's crossed. No, the question as Jesus goes throughout is, is constantly, who is this man? Who is this who speaks with such authority? What is this? A new teaching with authority. And so you are encountering Jesus as a man. And throughout it, you're kind of discovering, well, well who is this? Okay, he, he, he breathes and he talks and he walks. He's, he's a normal human being, and yet he's doing these extraordinary things. And what do these extraordinary things have to say about this man? So it's really a discovery process almost of who this Jesus is and what he has done. Mark is great at this. He saves it to the end to the centurion. Um, he's the last one who confesses that the only one in the gospel of Mark who confesses that 
Jesus is God. And it happens there at the cross. But Luke is like that. He gives so much more details. He's a bit more ready to admit that Jesus is God uh, throughout his gospel so that people connect the dots after who is this? And you think, oh yeah, Jesus is doing stuff only God can do. Therefore, uh, duh, Jesus is God. And so you're going to see that time and time again in, in the gospels. It's talked about in theological circles as a theology from below rather than a theology from above, meaning a perspective, right? If I look at the gospels, Matthew and John tend to have the perspective looking at, oh, this is just God, you know, top down, here he is, here's what he does. Whereas Matthew and, or whereas Luke and Mark tend to be more of a theology from below. So keep that in mind. That's going to appear again today as we encounter Jesus speaking a word and calling his first disciples. You'll see that and marvel at how this Jesus is talking and walking like everybody else, doing the, doing the normal stuff a man does. And yet he is at the same time doing things man cannot by their own reason or strength do. So you got this duality of the two natures of Christ being revealed time and time again. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing that's connected to that is the authority and the prominence of God's word. We just got through the healing of the man with an unclean demon, the demon possession, the casting out of him, be silent, come out back in chapter Four. So 35 and 36 are also most prevalent in the discussion because the gospel is Luke is masterful at keeping the authoritative word of God, not just Jesus's authority. Matthew's big on Jesus's authority, but the authority of the word that with which Christ speaks as God. That authority is seen throughout all of Luke. So after he casts out the demon, be silent, come out of him. The demon throws the guy down and they're all amazed and they say, and here's that theology from a book, from below, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. So enjoy the ride through and the look at Luke and the discovery of who this Jesus is, the two natures of Christ revealed, miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching, word after word. I think I think you're right about the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John being often in the center of our minds when we think about the Gospels, and Luke maybe off to the side a little bit. What's and this is maybe a side point, but I do find it it's somewhat interesting. At the same time, Luke is full of these accounts that we cherish in their own right. I mean, so we, you know, we just came out of Advent and Christmas. Yes, and I mean, can you imagine Advent and Christmas without Luke one and two? There's just you just can't, you know, or or the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, or the parable of the prodigal son, Zacchaeus. I mean, there's there's so many accounts that are unique to Luke. But but at the same time, you know, I, I don't know that maybe in our minds we we put it in the narrative of Luke. We just kind of, we hold onto those accounts for their own right without appreciating Luke for the fullness of, of the narrative that he writes, which certainly, I mean, you know, he tells us he's writing this orderly account, so we want to keep it in the account that he's given. Anyways, that's that's maybe a bit of a side point, but I, I do appreciate you bringing out in the context the authority of Jesus' word, because that was certainly a big part of our, our previous discussion at the end of Luke 4, and we're going to see that come up again, the authority of Jesus' word. And then I think this this text is also going to emphasize the the proper response to Jesus' word. You know, so far, just thinking through what we've we read in Jesus preaching 
in Nazareth, he preached, as, as you said, you know, he quoted that. It was a very dramatic scene where he, he reads from Isaiah 61. He says, it's, it's fulfilled in your hearing today. They end up rejecting him there. In Capernaum, when he preached, they're marveling at the authority of his word. They're asking the right questions. I, I think what we're going to get today, and maybe this is, I don't know, tell me what you think. Maybe this is the progression that Luke is giving us. Today, when we see Peter's response to the word, we're going to start to see faith, like genuine, you know, you said it, Jesus. So even though maybe it's not what I would have thought to do, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Maybe, what do you think? Is that the progression that we're seeing here in Luke? I do think that is the progression that you're seeing in Luke. And that is the first half of Luke, a nice summary of it, in fact, up through chapter nine. And in that summary then is, is encroached that theology from below as the authoritative word goes forth from the mouth of Jesus, and it does that with which he says, even building his church. And so the whole first half of this is centered on who is this Jesus person up to chapter nine, up to the transfiguration. And then you have the division then in chapter nine, after the transfiguration, where Jesus comes down the mountain and he senses, sets his face like Flint to go to Jerusalem. So I, I, maybe even the way to think about it easily for our hearers, because it's such a prominent thing where, oh yeah, I get a little events like Christmas time, I've got the birth of Jesus. And we hear the important events, but maybe to keep Luke's gospel in our mind, we can think of it. The first couple of chapters is, who is this Jesus? And then in the hinging of this, and discovering he is the Christ of God in chapter 9, after he goes down the mountain, you can think of the second half of the half of this is, here's what it means to be the Christ. Here's what he has come to do, suffer, bleed, die, rise, all of that stuff. All right, so we're in that first part. People are learning who is this Jesus. Today, it's going to be some men on a boat. So let's, let's read. This is Luke 5, beginning at verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. That's our text for today. That's Luke 5, verses 1 to 11. Pastor Philippek, before we get too far into the, you know, the very spectacular scene that we get, let's just let's set that scene Jesus is, is by the lake of Gennesaret. Can you give us some, some geography? And then in terms of the scene, what, what's he doing before you get to, into this miraculous catch of fish? Absolutely. So even before the lake of Gennesaret, the focus of Luke is on, as you said moments ago, the word of God. Notice how 
in all of this on one occasion, a crowd pressing in on him. And why are they pressing in on him? Because they want to hear the word of God. They want to hear that same authoritative word with which he cast out that demon. So it's not for nothing that Luke orders the authoritative word and the calling of his disciples to faith and also into the holy ministry right after that first miracle of the authoritative word. Well, that authoritative word being front and center has now come to the lake of Gennesaret. Weird thing, kind of a gentilic name. We don't usually hear it called the lake of Gennesaret. Luke likes to do that. Mark and Matthew tend to like to just call it the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias, all one in the same, but a matter of audience and who is the hearer of the gospel to which you write and speak. So don't get too hung up or think that you don't know it. Like, where is all of that? Same place, same Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias, Lake of Gennesaret, all one. But the word of God has come to that. And in that Sea of Tiberias, that Sea of Galilee, that Lake of Gennesaret, you have fishermen. And they've been fishing all night and they are washing their nets, which perhaps is a bit strange because you usually wash your nets only when you catch fish. But they are cleaning up after a long day of catching no fish, or rather a long evening of catching no fish. The night they were fishing and they caught nothing. So interestingly enough, we get Simon, whose mother-in-law had just kind of been healed. Simon enters the picture again. And what happens? Well, Jesus begins to teach from the boat. And he begins speaking, and as he begins speaking and people listening and hearing, that authoritative word goes forth from his mouth. And having gone forth from his mouth, he finishes, and then he speaks to Simon. So uh, just to, I mean, I think this, the way that, I, I pointed this out in the previous text, that you you have Jesus teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, and usually our minds automatically jump to, okay, he's going to cast out this demon. But before Luke records that there, he tells us Jesus was teaching and people were marveling at the authority of his word. Here too, in Luke chapter five, you have that same structure where before you get the, the miraculous catch of fish, Luke emphasizes the teaching of the word of God. And and I mean, Simon, as you, as you said, this is Simon's boat that Jesus gets into to teach from. And presumably Simon is listening. So, so Simon's heard the sermon that Jesus gave, whatever it was that he was teaching the crowds, he's heard. And then we come to this interaction between Simon and Jesus in, in verses four through six. So that, and that seems to be the, the center of this account. Although again, we've got that lead up to that we need to, to pay attention to, but take us into those, those, that first interaction between Jesus and Simon. Yeah. So you go from the crowd marveling to these specific men and the first men the first man, rather, that you encounter of these specific men is Simon. And we've only seen him in the healing of the mother-in-law so far. But Jesus's word now comes not generally to the crowd who marvels. And that word has had mixed receptions. It has been rejected, to be sure, like you mentioned. But it has also been received in marvel and awe. What now? But now we get the first response of actual faith that we see. And we'll talk about that as we go along, but this word is now directed to a particular group of people. Simon and John and James, all of them 
gathered around. And he says to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch of fish. Now, that's strange because they've been fishing all night. Simon knows this. We've toiled all night long. And what did we get? Nothing. We've worked hard. And what do we have to show for it? Our hard work has done nothing. <laughs> we we can't make fish come into our nets. We've done our best. We've tried. And now the night has ended and the daylight is going. We've worked all night and nothing. But notice what Simon says. Jesus spoke a word. He spoke a word, put down out in the deep, let down your nets for a catch of fish. And rather than rejecting it or marveling and saying, how, why do you, how do you say such things? How do you know such things? Simon neither rejects, Simon neither marvels. Simon hears the word of the Lord and hearing the word of the Lord creates in him a response of faith. The word itself has gone forth into Simon's ears, and Simon's response is, at your word, I will let down the nets. I mean, think about that. Because in the grand scheme of things, and I'm going to maybe couple that with, maybe we'll we'll marvel a little bit both and the authoritative word of God and, and the faith of, of Simon here. Couple that with what happens in verse five and then later on and you get a beautiful response of faith um, from the disciples altogether but Simon's faith at your word I will let down my nets and he does this is this is uh, equivalent in many respects to what happened with with Mary earlier in the gospel right we've we've seen this in Luke chapter one we've just been through Advent. How will this be since I am a virgin? And that is not a question, or I mean, that is not like a doubting statement on Mary's part, like Zachariah who said, how will this be since I am old? And he gets a punishment. No, Mary's is just a straightforward question and she gets answered. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And what does she say? Let it be to me, your servant, according to your word. That is faith. You have spoken and you will do it. It is the equivalent to what we say every week after key parts of of the service. I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We say that. This is the body and blood of Christ. Amen. After each important word that is given to us of God, the faithful response that it elicits is in amen. And Luther likes to do with this Uh, Yes, yes, it shall be so, which is good, and it is right, and it is salutary. I kind of like what Isaiah does. Uh, It's more poignant for me in our day and age. You have spoken, and you will do it. That's that's what you mean. This is my body. This is my blood. Amen. Let down your nets. Amen. Right? Absolutely. According to your word, you have spoken. I will do this for your word. It carries the authority with which you speak, and it can happen. And when you think about faith just in general, and I want to think about this and maybe dwell on this for just a minute with you, Pastor Apple, and our listeners. All the power we ever have as human beings is a word. I can't necessarily force you to do something. I could even say concerning your faith. I could tell you to renounce the Christian faith like martyrs in the past, or I will kill you with something. Now, you don't have to deny Jesus. You can certainly confess him and die. I can't force you to do something. 
all we have really at the end of the day is the word. Now that word can be authoritative or it can the word of God or it can be the word of man. Everything we do requires a degree of faith. And knowledge and faith aren't the same thing. For instance, I can know all about how a table works, how the legs screwed together onto the wooden platform that holds certain amounts of weight. I can know all about it. But faith actually trusts, always trusts a word. Faith says, if I put the books on the table, it's going to hold it up. Same thing with the car. If I can know all about starter, rotations, combustion, all of that stuff, but faith says, when I turn the key, it's going to do what the manufacturer says it's going to do. It's going to start. The problem is our faith is often placed in fallible, sinful man, right? No one is in and of themselves without sin except this Jesus. And when he speaks, it happens. And that's what Luke wants you to see in this, that at that word, Simon hears it and it elicits a response of faith and he casts out into the deep to let down his nets. So just to, to maybe piggyback on that, the when, we, when we're thinking about faith and Jesus' word in the relationship, what we, what we need to emphasize in Peter's response is, the as the ESV translates it, at your word, I will let down the nets. The emphasis is going to be on at your word more than it's I will let down the nets. Certainly the response of faith that Peter does let down the nets is part and parcel of everything that happens. But the real, the thing that makes everything tick here is the word of Jesus. It's that word that elicits the response of faith from Peter. And it is that word that actually accomplishes the catch of the fish. So we, we want to emphasize the, that part of Peter's response when we think about, okay, how are we going to take this and use it as Christians? It's the at your word. That's what we have is the word of Jesus, that much and nothing else. And that's all we need, in fact, is the word of Jesus. Absolutely. Everything that we have seen up to this point in Luke's gospel and everything that we've been talking about moments ago, faith requires a word. It requires the object. It is elicited out of the word, but the word goes forth and accomplishes that for which it purposes. And the word of man is sinful. It is fallible and put not your trust in princes, right? And, and men. But for Jesus to speak, means that he causes the very reality that he says to happen. For he is the way, he is the truth, and the he is the life. He is the great, if you will, I am, right? So he is existence and all that he is and all that he does, he brings into reality. So at your word, you have spoken and it will happen. So Peter, according to the word of the Lord, does what the Lord has asked him, but it is the word that causes him to do that. It's the word that always accomplishes everything. Even what we say, as we talked about moments ago with Holy Communion, with absolution, I forgive you all your sins. Well, that is Christ's word to me. Here's what I have to say to you, Jesus says, I forgive you. And it happens. Don't have to feel it. Don't have to think anyone could or would. Just simply hearing that word elicits that response of faith. Amen. You have spoken. You have done it. And the same thing is, this is my body and blood. Of course it is. Can't be anything else. You have said it, you have spoken, and so it is. And that is the interplay of the word with faith. And that faith comes by hearing and hearing 
through the word of Christ. As you're talking here, Pastor Philippeck, I'm trying to connect some of the dots between what, what you and I have already talked about and some of the previous guests have mentioned to me. In the, in the previous episode, in, at the end of Luke chapter 4, Dr. Giese made the point that, that in Luke, we see Jesus bringing a new creation. You know, you've got Luke's gospel, where the genealogy takes you all the way back to the son of Adam, the son of God. And then you see Jesus as the new Adam do what Adam failed to do, and you, you see him really bringing about a new creation in the the miracles that we saw him accomplish in the the previous text. You know, the casting out of demons, the healing, the restoration of creation. And now, now we're talking this morning about when when Jesus speaks, the reality comes to be, which. Man, that sounds an awful lot like what you see in Genesis 1 and 2, that when God speaks, for example, and I don't think these are the words that Moses records, but for paraphrasing purposes, let there be fish. <laughs> when he says that in Genesis 1, there's fish. And and it's almost like, and I, I don't know, you can tell me what you think if maybe Luke is, it, I think we can make this connection, even if it's not precisely where Luke's mind was going. But Jesus is doing the same thing here in, in Luke chapter 5. And, and in that way, here's that theology from below. I'm observing Jesus saying, let there be fish, and there's fish. And I'm thinking, who is this man? Oh, exactly. he's, he's the one from Genesis 1 and 2, but now he's here in the flesh. Absolutely. I think just the, the fun way of saying that is for the mystery aspect and the theology below, who is this man? It's, it's really just the fact that Jesus is doing God's stuff. <laughs> and that he's doing the things only God can do. So when the fish, the casting out of the demon, the calming of the storm later in Luke chapter eight, by the end of Luke, you see, who is this man? He has power over creation gone awry. He has power over illness. He has power to forgive sins. He has power over the devil to cast him out. And he even can raise people from the dead by his word. Who is this who's doing God's stuff? Oh, yeah, he can't be anybody other than God. Only God can do the things that God does. Jesus is doing the things that God does, therefore Jesus is God. You know, I mean, that's kind of the progression of this. Yeah, so, I mean, here we are unfolding this mystery with St. Luke as he's recording it for us in his gospel. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Luke chapter 5 with Pastor Adam Philippic. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, January 26th. We are studying Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11 with Pastor Adam Philippek. He serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippek, prior to the break, we were really talking about the word of Jesus that brings about the miraculous catch of fish and also elicits this faith from Peter. And you had mentioned Mary earlier, and my mind went to her also within the context of the gospel according to St. Luke. 
how with Mary, you have this wonder about what's happening. She knows that she is a virgin, and yet the angel is promising, you're going to have a son, and she she asks about it. Here with, with Peter, you have that same wonder. You know, Master, we, we've done this all night. There was nothing. But with both of them, they say, because of the word, I, I believe. And, and I think there's a similar thing happening. My mind also went to Hebrews chapter 11, where over and over again, the author of Hebrews says, by faith. And, and he brings up all these Old Testament saints, many of whom also had that same sense of wonder that what the Lord was saying to them, it didn't fit with what their, if I can say it like this, what their eyes saw. And yet because of the, the word of the Lord, they, they went with it. They believed because they knew the word of the Lord would do what he said, and that word had brought about that faith. And it, it seems that there's a connection to our Christian experience still today, that so often the word that God speaks to us, whether it's in the commandments or in his promises, we scratch our heads and say, Lord, that doesn't seem to match up with what I see, but because you've said it, I believe, amen, that the word that you emphasize. And it seems that's a, that's a connection we can make from this text to our Christian experience lived today. Absolutely. And you did a good service to us by connecting that to Hebrews chapter 11 by faith. Before I quickly comment on that, I will add in between Mary and Hebrews, Simeon's response is, is the same. He promised, God promised him he would not taste death. He would not see it until he held the Lord's Christ. And that is exactly what he does. And then uh, sings the nunc dimittis, Lord, now let your servant go in peace according to your word. So what we see here is that that word goes forth and actually does what it says. It might not always make sense to us because when our word goes forth from our mouth, it doesn't always do what it says. I'm going to take take out the garbage. Sure, I'll take out the garbage, mom and dad. And then we sit on our butt. This is the kind of point I was making with that faith always trusts the word with the whole manufacturer's thing. Well, the car's going to start. Well, it doesn't always start, does it? I mean, parts break down. We live in a world of sin and death, and that's what we see. We see words broken all the time, words constantly broken. But where Hebrews goes, where Mary goes, where even Simeon goes upon hearing the word is one that is quite foreign to this world because where everywhere else breaks their word, each one of them, upon hearing the word of Christ, trusts that word. And that is actually what Hebrews is after, recounting how many times that word comes in a rather hopeless situation. And by faith, what? Abraham? And then you get the whole story of Abraham, even to the point where he was going to sacrifice his son. But you know what? What happens to the promise? What about what about this promised child who's going to crush the head of the serpent? What if he dies? But immediately it's added, Abraham believed that God could raise him from the dead. I mean, think about that. That, that word constantly is shown to be faithful and true in Hebrews even if that word takes a long time to happen. So Simeon also taking a long time, but I'm not going to taste death. I'm not going to die until you see the Lord's Christ. Mary and Elizabeth all waiting and waiting and waiting for this consolation of Israel, this promised Messiah to come. And finally at long last, it comes to me by the word. And that's the interesting thing about all this is faith always trusts the word, but that faith is not, shall I say, as the world likes to say, 
blind faith or some Christians. There's nothing blind about the faith because it is solidified. Its substance is the word. And that's what Hebrews interested is interested in. Look at how many times this word is spoken and look at how many times God has been faithful and true to that word, despite what your eyes see. And so a Christian can take great comfort in this again, because whether or not we feel like anyone should forgive us for the sins that we have committed, whether or not we we think that, oh, anybody could ever love us again. The fact of the matter remains that the word has gone forth from God's mouth. And if you confess your sins, God who is faithful and just, there's no question about what that word does. God who is faithful and just will forgive your sins. So you say to God, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you. Well, God says to you, I forgive you all your sins. And as far as the East is from the West at that, at the Lord's word, it has happened. That sin has been removed from you. And there is no separation between you and God anymore. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, because that is his promise to you. And the same thing when all you see around you is sin and suffering and death, and you feel like there's nothing in this world that that you can live for and you can hardly pull your hands out of your head and you don't know how you're going to go on and how you're going to have the strength to meet the day ahead. The Lord promises through his word, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Surely I am with you always to the end of the age. I have called you by name and you are mine. And with these words, even I baptize you in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit. With these words, a Christian knows for certain that as our Lord has spoken, he will do it. And it might not always make sense. There's a lot of things that don't make sense. You know what we call things that don't make sense? Mysteries. Doesn't mean we need to solve them. And it doesn't mean they're untrue. It just means I can't wrap my little feeble, sinful mind around it. I'll give you a mystery of, of my feeble mind, Pastor Apple. Uh, I go to get a drink from my water fountain because I'm thirsty. I push, I see liquid, my lips taste the liquid, it's water. But at a molecular level, we are told H2O, two hydrogens, right? The oxygen, all of that sort of stuff. And you think, okay, I get it. But when you start to try to think about it, it's like, that blows my mind. Well, it's the same sort of thing, right? Just because it blows your mind doesn't mean it's not true. No, faith trusts the word. And it's even more sure than that. It's, it's the Lord has spoken. He does it. I, I love I love the connection on the just again to the word and and then what that what that gives to us that certainty and I mean I just thinking about Hebrews again after chapter eleven chapter twelve starts therefore since we've got this great cloud of witnesses let's keep our eyes on Jesus who we encounter in the word and run with endurance why because because we've got the word and that that's what it keeps coming back to for our lives as Christians and I, I think I think that's what Jesus is giving to Peter. And the other disciples here is this confidence in the word as they will eventually go out. This is where the text is going with to become fishers of men. So so with that, let, let's keep working our way through the text. So we've been talking about this, this theology from below and, and we're seeing, OK, Jesus is revealing himself to be the God who created everything, whose word has authority and is effective to do what he says. And Peter, it seems, has this realization as well. But he's not particularly, well, he doesn't say, yay, the Lord is here. <laughs> his, his reaction is quite different. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And, and that is included not only with those words, but he's actually falling down at, at Jesus' feet saying this. So why this reaction from Peter upon witnessing the authority, the power of Jesus' word? The answer lies in scriptures of old. 
Exodus and so on and so forth, even back all the way to Genesis. A sinner cannot stand in the presence of God and live. They couldn't enter the temple because they were unclean and God was holy and clean and perfect. And the, the day of atonement was all about cleansing the temple from people's impurity and cleansing the people from their own impurity so that God could remain in their midst. Well, when Peter sees that God is indeed in his midst, that Jesus has come to his boat and there has spoken and these things have happened, even brought about the fish so much so that they've had to call the second boat to come and so that the miraculous catch could actually be caught and the boat could not sink. Peter is taken aback and he realizes, no, no, I am in the presence of a holy God. It's reminiscent of Isaiah 6. Woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord, the King of hosts. Woe is not a nice word. It's not in the Old Testament. It's not like, oh, woe to me. My battery on my car died today and I got stuck for two. No, woe is a way, a way of saying death. Death to me. I, I have seen God's presence and I shall not live. We have a similar, similar life in Christ. It is a life that, well, they lived in the Exodus. It's a life that Peter lived. It's a life that we live in the divine service. As we kneel before our Lord after confession or in confession, I, a poor, miserable sinner, we're essentially, you know, if you want a picture of this, our head's kind of on the chopping block, the guillotine. I deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. I've not loved you with my whole heart. I've not loved my neighbor as myself. I've broken all 10 commandments. I know it. Give it to me. I know the justice and I deserve. And yet we plead for a word of mercy. We plead for a word of mercy. And God doesn't come to sinners who confess their sins with judgment. He comes to sinners who confess their sins with mercy, with words of absolution. I forgive you. Peter's words are, do not be afraid. Isaiah's words were the tongue taking the coal from the altar. This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. But our Lord comes to sinners who confess their sins, repentant sinners. He comes not in judgment, but in mercy. So do not be afraid, Peter. Yes, you may deserve death and hell, but I am here to give you forgiveness and life. So fear not, dear Peter. So I mean this this back and forth then between the second back and forth between Jesus or Peter and Jesus that the depart from me and then just I'm going to put a break in Jesus' words the do not be afraid this is I mean not all that different than what happens in confession and absolution in the divine service still today it sounds like just with different different language absolutely because well you plead you know I deserve my temporal and eternal punishment or present and eternal punishment, depending upon which service you're using that day. Immediately, you are waiting for you know, that guillotine to fall, and yet you've pleaded to God's mercy, and God's answer to, is, to you is quite interesting, which gets into fishers of men. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office, as a called and ordained servant of Christ. Okay, well, that's fishers of men stuff. Announce the grace of God unto you. I don't, I don't do this by my own authority. I'm an announcer. Here's what God says to you. I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It is the same line of do not be afraid. It is the same line of your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And you're left thinking there, really? 
Like, you're not going to give me what I deserve? You've taken away my sin? You've taken that sin upon yourself? And then, you know, in the divine service, depending upon where it is, you're, you know, you're immediately thrust into after the Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. It's like, quick, give me a hymn. And you're either going, this is the feast or glory be to God on high and on earth peace. And, I mean, the church is just singing the praises of God because that is the response. He has brought us out of death. And instead of death, he's given us life. We praise you and acknowledge you. Oh, God, all of this good stuff. And so then, well, let's let's go into the second part of Jesus' words to Peter then, because I mean, it sounds like Jesus is telling Peter, this is what your mouth is going to start doing, because you've, because you've been called to be my disciple, and because your sins have been forgiven, here's what's going to happen. The language, as Luke records it, from now on, you will be catching men. So Jesus is, is using Peter's own background as a fisherman, but he's going to change it. He says, you're going to be catching men. So this is one of those places where we, we want to be careful and make sure we make the connections that are there to make and maybe not make connections that aren't there to make. So what does it mean for Peter, for and these there are other disciples mentioned here as well, James and John, sons of Zebedee, partners of Simon. What does it mean for them to be catching men? Sure. So our Lord comes to people and meets them in their situations of life where they're at in the manner of the vocation that they have. So these men are fishermen. So it's no surprise our Lord doesn't use a farming analogy or anything like that. He uses fishers analogy. And what do they know? They know fishing. And what does it mean to fish? I need a sea. I need fish. I need a net to catch with, and I need a boat. <laughs> so Jesus takes this and applies it to what has just happened to them. This isn't like a weird, like, oh, allegory. Well, we can see by this and this. And No, this is a reality. He wants them to think about the reality of fishing and what has just happened to them in, in respect to the thought of fishing. And so what he has done is used something that they know well. Well, think about it. Uh, how do you catch men? I know how to catch fish. That's with a gnat. And how do you catch men? Well, how is it that I just got caught by our Lord and told to follow him and respond? It was the word, the net that caught me. It was the authoritative word of God. And fish, fishers of men, the fish are not fish. No, they're now men. And so I catch men. Men are caught by the preaching of the word. And the sea out there, if is interestingly enough, as you as you trace it through Luke, as you trace it uh, all the way to the end of Luke, uh, Luther does this really, really well, honestly, in in one of his sermons on Luke five. Uh, he he just gives it, it a very nice summary of kind of what we did. So net our our preaching of the word of God, the, the fish are the people. We have that the sea ends up being the whole vastness of the darkness of the world, the the things that they are lost in, and sin and demons and suffering and death and creation gone awry into that area, into the entire world of the sea. They are sent into the chaos, if you will, if you want to trace it all the way back through the Old Testament, the churning waters. They are sent, and then the boat. If you actually follow how the boat works through Luke and how it works even into the Old Testament, you find out that the boat is equivalent to uh, the church. And that might seem strange because you think, well, wait a minute, 
you catch fish and you put them in a boat. Don't fish die? <laughs> I mean, like a fish out of water here? But no, this is the cool thing because if you're thinking of what has just happened and you're tracing this through Luke, what you find out is that men are taken out of the toxic churning waters of the sea of the world and they are placed into the ark the boat of the Christian church, as we often talk about this in our own language when we talk about the service of baptism, especially the uh, the flood prayer, that they be kept safe and secure in the ark of the Christian church, being separated from the multitude of unbelievers. So we have this world and a dichotomy there. But these, these fish are going to be kept safe and secure in a boat. How will they do it? And this is the interesting thing. It's with water. And you think, water? They're out of the boat. No, no, no. Who has called them? Who has called them is Christ by his gospel. So the fish live by the living water, the pure living water, and not the toxic water of the sea. No, the pure living water who is Christ that is poured over them in the waters of baptism, as well as the preaching of the gospel, that that water, in that water, even in the boat, they may live, they may move, they may have their being always, only ever in the living water. So, so men are pulled up in the safe, secure boat of which they are sustained still by the living water. The preaching of the gospel, the same thing that caught Peter, is the same thing that he will use to catch fish, men, from the sea of the world. Uh, well, go ahead. Just real quick, Pastor Philippe. I, I think it, you know, I appreciate you bringing out that the fact that the fish get pulled out of the water, you know, that, that image of fishing, when we fish, we usually... Either. Well, sometimes I usually throw them back, but sometimes <laughs> you eat them, you know, and that's not the, like, that's part of the the picture that we're not meant to pick up and apply. And I appreciate the way that you, you bring out the water imagery. I just having recently read Ezekiel here on Sharp Iron, I, I remember back in Ezekiel's vision of the new temple, when he sees the river flowing from the temple, there's fishermen there and there's fish there. And it, again, it's a positive image there. I think you've got that same positive image. So keep keep talking then about how this is going to work for the, the disciples being fishers of men, using the word to preach and catch these men and, and bring them into life in Christ. Absolutely. So you will see this developed more and more. In fact, as you approach Luke 10 specifically, you're going to get this full-blown in 10 and get this whole understanding of it in chapter 10 of Luke's gospel as you study it. But it is beginning here in chapter 5. What will happen in chapter 10 is Jesus is going to send out his disciples with his authoritative word to preach. And they're going to go out and they're going to preach. And there's going to be some who hear that and are caught in the net and believe in him. And there will be others who reject them. And about all of that experience, when they come back to process it, Jesus will say to them, after he has sent them out with his authoritative word to preach, he will say, the one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So to use a very familiar language, which is usually the gospel of John, so for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? The father sends the son in the power of the Holy Spirit. At the end of that gospel, Jesus, rising from the dead, appears to his disciples, breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, they are for, it is withheld. We get that part, but remember what comes before it. As the Father has sent me, so now even I send you. 
and then he breathes on them. And this is what happens in Luke. Jesus is sent with the authoritative word of God as the authoritative word of God, the word in the flesh, to bring about the salvation of people. And when he ascends, he is going to send them out again with the same word, with the same authoritative word of absolution, of baptism, of holy communion, of the preaching of Jesus Christ, who was dead, is alive again, ascended to heaven and will come again to take you to be with him so that where he is there, you will be also in all of these different things. And it's kind of putting it in familiar language for us that this is the institution of the office of the holy ministry. You hear this fishers of men on Sunday morning spoken to you like this in the stead and by the command of my Lord, instead of seeing and hearing Jesus, instead of him plopping down and saying, here I am, I forgive you. He chooses to use sinful men who have themselves been caught in this net of preaching. I think it is a marvelous thing that our Lord works through men's means and, and actually sends sinful men. Because when people see me and they know me, and yes, they see me in pastor as love me as pastor, but my uniform declares something. I wear a clerical that is predominantly black. So um, in all the, the whole sense of the, the word and all the history of this, uh, their heart is fraught with sin. I am a sinner. And that's what my uniform says. There's nothing good that comes out of Adam Philippeck except, and this is the collar across the throat, except what proceeds from the throat, from the mouth, from my mouth, from that throat is the living active word of God. So this is not Adam Philippeck. No, this is Christ using his sinful instrument, the who he's placed in his office with his authority. Uh, he's using that pastor and that pastor is just trumpeting. He's, he's proclaiming that word. And I think this is of great comfort because if a, a stinking rotten sinner like Adam Philippeck, a worm of a man can be forgiven and can hear the word of the Lord and speak the word of the Lord, then there's hope for me too. And I think this is the benefit of, of God actually using sinful men, catching sinful men and sending sinful men with his authority. But it's still Christ who forgives Christ who baptizes, Christ who absolves, Christ who feeds with his word and sacrament. How does he do it? Uh, through the mouth and hands of his sinful instrument, the pastor. But it is his office and his authority and his holiness. So everything that you're saying there, Pastor Philippic, I think really, again, highlights for us the centrality and the importance of the word of God. I mean, so Peter and the apostles get sent, and they get sent with the word. And the point is, that's enough. And, and here in Luke 5, they've been given, as you said, it's not a blind faith. It is a faith in the word that is effective. They have seen that the word of Jesus works. It, it does what he says. And so that they can have confidence when they go out with the word that that's going to be enough, that that, that is what will catch these men and place them into this holy ark of the Christian church. That word that they have will be enough. And even though they're sinful men, because they have the word, that word will do the job. I mean, and I think you're, you're right that it's a marvelous thing that the Lord chooses sinful men to be pastors, because it is a reminder to us and the church that, you know, you know what, you, you might not like your pastor, like the people in Lidgerwood, like Pastor Philippeck, <laughs> but but he's your pastor. He's been put there by God, and he's got the word. And it's, it's not about whether or not you like him or, or he's, he's very handsome or he's got a, a great chancel presence or, or whatever. It's about, is he preaching the word? And if he's preaching the word, that's what matters because that word does the work. The word 
is enough. And I mean, what a what a great comfort for every pastor and for every congregation that that no matter what it may seem, the external circumstances may seem stacked against us. That if we have the Word, we've got everything, and the Lord will do His work through that Word as surely as He provided this miraculous catch of fish for His disciples on the Sea of Galilee 2,000 years ago. He's going to do the same. His Word will go forth and accomplish what He intends. That is a, a just a marvelous comfort for His church today to stick to the Word. Pastor Philbeck, we got about two minutes. Help me wrap things up this morning. Absolutely. And the fishers of men, they come and they go, like you said, Pastors come and go. Some we like better than others, personalities or certain characteristics that we share of interests and things like that. But despite the man and the sinful man, there's one thing that never changes. There's one thing that endures forever, and that's the word of the Lord. So throughout the ages, that word has not changed. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, though the instrument that he trumpets with the voice of a pastor or the voice of a particular individual forgiving the sins of another that has sinned against them or the body and blood of Christ, the holy waters of holy baptism is, is administered by the pastor. Though the hand and the voice may change, it's still the same word. It's still the same Jesus time and time again. He does not leave his church. He feeds it. He nourishes it. He sustains it because he is the pure living water in which they live, they move, their and they have their being. And though despite what their eyes might tell them about a world of chaos and, a, and lost in a sea of sin and suffering and death, still the word of the Lord is true. Despite what we feel about our sins, we confidently know our sins are forgiven and we believe it because he has said it. I forgive you. We believe that Jesus is with us always because we can take and eat, take and drink. This is his body. This is his blood. He is as near as us to that taste in his mouth for he has said it. I might not always understand it, but that's the limitations of my feeble brain. He has spoken and he will do it. And in the end, even our greatest enemy death is undone by words. The trumpet sounds, yes, the dead are raised, but the word remains. Come with me, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. And there will be no more suffering, no more illness, no more pain, no disease, no death. The last enemy, the greatest enemy, death, will forever be destroyed. And we shall live with Christ. He has spoken. He will do it. Pastor Adam Philippeck is pastor at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota, helping us today with Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Pastor Philippeck, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 5 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Mm-hmm.